do not love the world or the things in the world. The world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. First John chapter two, grab your Bibles, turn with me to first John chapter two. This morning, we're going to be studying three verses, first John two verses 15 through 17. Um, there are some passages of scripture that are hard to understand. You know, they're tricky. We don't really know what's going on here. There are other passages of scripture that are not hard to understand, but they're hard to swallow. They're hard to accept. This is one of those. This is a hard text that we're going to study this morning. Not in that it's unclear, but that it's a heavy text this morning. It is a weighty text this morning. It is something that I think we desperately, as followers of Jesus Christ, need to hear. So maybe it is a little bit of a trigger warning to start the sermon. That This is a no-holds-barred kind of sermon, okay? This is a heavy passage. And I love that that fell on Father's Day. Uh, I do. I love that it fell on Father's Day for a couple of reasons. First of all, I mean, we're preaching through a book of the Bible. We didn't pick this. God did. Uh, so I love that, that this is sort of in the providence of God. This is where we landed on Father's Day. But I also love it uh, for another cynical reason that I think is funny. Uh, so if you were here about a month ago on Mother's Day, sermon was super encouraging, super warm-hearted, leave a legacy of faith, encouraging, awesome. Uh, and then we get to Father's Day and we're gonna beat you up a little bit. Uh, and here's why I think that's funny. And thank God this is not true of Coastal. We're far more gospel-centered. Don't wanna get the men's and women's ministry people mad at me. But it's like a stereotype in church world sometimes that you go to the women's event and the messaging is something like this. Girl, you are awesome. You are just awesome. You are like a beautiful flower. Just you be you, girl. Then you go to the men's event and you got this like Marine drill sergeant up there being like, you moron, get a job, quit looking at porn, get your life together, dude, what's wrong with you? <laughs> uh, I mean, that's all good advice, but, but, um, <laughs> but here's the deal. And I'm kind of leaning into that a little bit this morning because men, this is a message that we need. Fathers, this is a message that we need. John says, do not love the world. Fathers, we are the one who stands in the gap between our families and the world. God has given us a sacred stewardship and responsibility to guard our families from the temptations of the world, to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the world. So we need this message this morning. He starts by saying, do not love the world. Do not love the world. You know, we're going to spend some time in a couple of minutes unpacking what he means by the word world. But it's important to understand that in Scripture gives us basically three enemies to our faith. The world, the flesh, and the devil. The flesh is our sin nature uh, that we've inherited from Adam that brings us this bent that we have towards sin, this inclination towards sin. The devil, of course, is Satan, the evil one, the tempter, the accuser. But the world, I believe, and I'm going to unpack this more in a little bit, is the system of values and beliefs that characterizes humanity apart from Christ. 
that characterizes this fallen world. It is the rebellion of humanity against God. The ringleader is Satan, and it is enticing to our flesh. All three of those enemies are allies. The world is the system of unbelief. I love the way that Kevin DeYoung put it. He said that worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. It is the worldview. It is the lens through which our culture looks at the world that is aimed at making sin look normal and making righteousness look strange. It is what makes sin seem appealing. It is what it makes seem, it seem plausible. It is what makes us laugh when we see something righteous or something good, but not even bat an eye when we see something sinful. That's worldliness. It changes the way that we think and the way that we feel and what we desire. And I can't think of a better example of worldliness than the month that we're in. Can you? I mean, unless you missed all the rainbows everywhere. Guys, it's Pride Month. Our culture has devoted an entire month to making what God's word calls sin look normal and making what God's word called righteous look strange. What happens is we take what God's word calls sin, we try to make that appear normal and good, whereas we take what God's word calls righteous, what God teaches about things like gender and sex, and say, if you believe that, you're strange or worse, you are hateful, you are evil. So as Christians, what should we do about it? How should we respond to the worldliness, to the influence of the world around us as followers of Christ? Well, I'm glad you asked, because here's the main point this morning. We are called to avoid the influence of the world and pursue obedience to God's will. We are called to avoid the influence of the world around us, but instead we are to pursue obedience to the will of God because as John is going to say, the one who does the will of God is the one who abides forever. So with all these things in mind, let's study these verses together. Let's read 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 15. The word of God says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world... The love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the world, but is from the Father. It's not from the Father, but it's from the world. Sorry. I got to be real careful here. I'm about to get called out for heresy or something. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The command of this text There's really one command in this text. The rest of it is supporting it. The command is this, do not love the world. Do not love the world. It's interesting, isn't it? Last week, the sermon was on love. Now he's telling us, don't love the world. There are some loves that are wrong. There are some loves that are sinful even. He says, do not love the world. So we need to spend some time here. Let's unpack this. What does he mean by world? What is he talking about? Let's start with what he doesn't mean. First of all, he's not referring to the earth or the created order. Sometimes the Bible uses the word world simply to refer to creation or the earth. But God said that everything that he made was good. That's why we can sing, this is my father's world, because this world in that sense is very good. But he's also not referring to the people in the world whom God loves. For example, John three sixteen, God so loved what? The world. He's talking about the people in the world. 
Of course we are to love the people in the world. We are to love our neighbor as ourself. We are to love the brothers as John told us about last week. So he's not talking about the people either. What he is referring to, as I've already said, is the system of unbelief and rebellion that characterizes fallen humanity. It is the worldview of our culture, the way that our culture teaches us to think and to feel what we should desire, what we should value, that is opposed to the word of God. To quote Kevin D. Young again, the people of this world are to be loved. The system of this fallen world is to be categorically rejected. We are to love the people. We are not to love the system of this world. We are to love the people and we are to hate the lies that are keeping them in bondage. So let's now do a little bit of diving into what does the Bible teach us about this world that we are not to love? I'm gonna spam you with Bible verses for a minute because this is important. What does the Bible teach us about this fallen world system? First of all, it is ruled by Satan. He is the ringleader of this rebellion against God. 1 John 5, 19 says this, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world, the whole fallen world system is under his control. He is the ringleader of this rebellion against God. Believers then, what is our relationship with the world to be now that we are in Christ? There's the phrase that I'm sure you've heard before, it comes from Jesus, that we are to be in the world, but not of the world. John 17, 11, Jesus says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I am coming to you. So Jesus gets to leave the world. He ascended into heaven, but we are still in the world. Nevertheless, a few verses later, John 17, 16, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. What a difference a preposition makes to my grammar nerds. The difference between being in the world and of the world is huge. We are in the world, meaning we still live here. We still have a mission. We can't retreat. We can't hide. We have to be engaged. We have a mission to do in this world, but we are not of the world. We do not have the same beliefs, the same values, the same desires. We are not of the world. And here is why. Because friendship with the world is rebellion against God. Listen to how strong James's language is in James 4.4. He says, you adulterous people. Think about what he's saying there. Just pause. Think about the metaphor there. He's saying friendship with the world is spiritual adultery. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And so when we have the love of the Father within us, when we are in Christ, what will be the response of the system of this world? Jesus tells us in John chapter 15, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Therefore the world hates you. We can expect hatred. We can expect to be called bigots. We can expect to be called names. We can expect to maybe lose our job for standing on our convictions. We can expect these things because
because we are not of the world. And John tells us, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Friends, these are two mutually exclusive loves. You cannot love the world and love the Father. You can't. That's what he's saying. You cannot serve two masters. We cannot love both God and the world. So let me apply this a little bit. I think as Christians, there tend to be three basic ways that we can get this wrong. There can be three different ways that we can get worldliness wrong. I'm gonna give you three words and I'm gonna unpack them. We can complain, we can compromise, and we can avoid. Those are the three ways we can get worldliness wrong. Let's start with complaining. As Christians, we can acknowledge these things. We can look around us and see the brokenness of the world around us. We can see how messed up the culture is, yada, yada, yada. And what do we do about it? We complain. We get together in our Christian bubbles and we're like, man, can you see what these stupid people are doing now? Ugh. And we complain and we grumble and we get frustrated or worse, maybe we even take it to Facebook. And we post these long rants about how things are so messed up and it ain't how it used to be and yada, 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 things are so terrible. And we can get all worked up and complain, but there's a few things wrong with that. First of all, God says, don't do it. <laughs> you know, do all things without grumbling and disputing. So it's a sin. Second of all, another thing that's wrong with it is this. Here's a sports tip for you. When you're watching sports, the team that's complaining to the refs is gonna lose. It's a sports tip. The team that's complaining to the refs is gonna lose. Why? Because they've lost their confidence in their ability to win. And so they gotta blame someone else. I think we complain because we tend to lose our confidence in the gospel. We tend to forget that we're on the winning team. We're complaining about how bad things are. Great, more opportunities for evangelism right? He gives us this confidence in scripture that we are on the winning team, that the gospel is going to win. Instead of complaining, we should have confidence. But the second word I gave you is compromise. There's a lie as Christians that we can be tempted to believe, and it's this. I need to be like the world in order to win the world. A lot of Christians, I think they have a sincere desire to see people come to know Christ, and they can start to think, well, maybe if I become more relevant— Maybe if I can get people to like me, maybe if I can just become like the world a little bit, just adopt a little bit of their thinking, a little bit of their lifestyle, then maybe I can get them to come to Christ. Here's what's wrong with that. You're not, they are not going to be the one to change, you are. That's the way that influence is going to work. I've seen it a thousand times. It never works. And not only does it not work, it's unfaithfulness to the God who tells us not to love the world. The final one is avoid. I ain't going to compromise, and there's no good complaining about it, so I'm just going to avoid it. I am going to live my life in my Christian bubble. I'm not going to know any lost people, not going to have any lost friends, not going to talk to lost people, going to, you know, just shun them. I'm only going to go to church, and I am going to avoid the world around me like the plague. The problem with that is that we have been given a mission right? The great commission to go into all the world and to make disciples for Christ. And so to avoid the world out of fear of the influence of the world is to be unfaithful to the mission that we have been given. So instead of these, what do we do? We need to learn as followers of Christ how to reject with all of our hearts the lies in the system of this world while engaging people in the world with love and with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have to be able to hold that tension in hand. 
We have to learn how to reject the lies of this world, but love the people in this world. Because John is getting ready to tell us in verse 16 what the temptations of the world are. The temptations of the world. He says, don't love the world or the things that are in the world. These are the things that are in the world. These three temptations characterize the things that are in the world that entice us to love the world instead of the Father. Let's go through the three of these and let's look at verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the world, is not from the Father, but is from the world. I did it again. Is <laughs> not from the Father, but is from the world. I need some new glasses. Um, so first of all, the desires of the flesh. Desires of the flesh. Now, one quick note on the word desire. In the Bible, this is actually a neutral word. Uh, so for example, it's used in different places, the same word to describe both good and bad desires. So on the positive side, Paul told the Thessalonians that he earnestly desired to come to them to see them soon. Jesus said in Luke 22, he earnestly desired to eat the Passover with his disciples. It's also used for bad desires. Matthew chapter five, Jesus said, anyone who looks at a woman with Lust, or the same Greek word, earnest desire, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So the idea here is a strong desire. And as human beings, we all have desires. Desires are a natural part of what it means to be a human being. But because of our sin nature, our desires become warped. They become twisted. They become, they, we begin to desire things that we were never intended by God to desire. Galatians 5 gives us a list of many of the desires of the flesh. Galatians 5, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's saying these are the desires that characterize our sinful nature. That's what the desires of the flesh are. The intense craving that we have to satisfy our sin nature, to satisfy our flesh. This is internal temptation. And it boils down to this. This is the bottom line on the desires of the flesh. The desires of the flesh says, I will do whatever it takes to please me, regardless of how it affects you, regardless of what God says. I'm number one. My life is about the fulfillment of my desires, my own pleasures. And listen, we are all sinners, yet we all sin differently, right? So this looks different for different people. For some of us, the desires of the flesh looks like sexual sin and, and pornography. For others of us, this looks like substance abuse, whether that be, be alcohol or drug use. For some of us, this could be overindulging in food. It could be laziness, that I indulge my flesh by refusing to engage in the work that God has called me to. We could keep going. Paul gave a much longer list than I did. But here's the bottom line. The person given to the desires of the flesh lives for one reason and one reason only, and that's pleasure. I'm number one. I'm going to please and gratify my flesh no matter what. These are these sinful desires that we have. And again, the world is going to tell you that if you have a desire, you should fulfill it, that your desires are good, 
that your desires are righteous. And if you have a desire, you should fulfill it. But because we know that scripture teaches that we're broken and we're sinful, we should understand that just because I have a desire doesn't make it good. It could be arising from my sin nature. So as followers of Christ, we must be vigilant. We need to know the areas of sinful desire in our hearts and prayerfully wage war against them, wage war against indulging them. But that's not all. There's also the desires of the eyes. Desires of the eyes. And I'd like to put it this way. If desires of the flesh is the internal temptation, the temptation that comes from within us, desires of the eyes is the external temptation. Those are the things that are in the world that entice us to sin from outside of us. And we see several biblical examples of this. Eve saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes. She saw it and it made her want to take it. Think about Achan in Joshua chapter seven, when he took some of the things that were devoted to the Lord. And in his confession to Joshua, he said, when I saw the cloak and the money, I coveted it, I took it and I hid it. Think about King David. How did that whole thing get started? With Bathsheba, the desires of the eyes. What does this mean for us as followers of Christ? It means that it's not enough for us simply to seek to restrain the desires in our hearts, but we also should strive to avoid putting ourselves in situations that can be occasions for temptation. We need to understand what are the desires of the eyes in my life, the things that I need to stay away from. I think a big area for this, for us as Christians is entertainment. I don't think there's anything that so inculcates the values of this world in our lives more than entertainment. The movies that we watch, the TV shows that we watch, the music that we listen to. Guys, I'll just be blunt. There are some movies and TV shows that Christians have absolutely no business watching. Absolutely no business. Paul says that sexual immorality shouldn't even be named among you in Ephesians chapter five. We should be so careful with what we allow ourselves to watch. Or even this, Desires of the eyes is not just about entertainment. It's also about our wallet, right? We see, we want, we buy without any other considerations of, can I afford this? Is this good for me? Is this good for my soul? Is this good for my family? I've heard it said before uh, that we go into debt buying things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like. How often do we do that? because of the desires of the eyes. We see it, I crave it, and I have to have it. This is the desires of the eyes. But the last one is the pride of life, the pride of life. You know, if I could just nerd out for five seconds with you, uh, the word for pride here was used of someone who was boastful without reason. Basically, someone who has this overinflated ego and no reason to have it. And life, interestingly enough, uh, it can refer to a person's living or how they make a living. So putting those pieces together, it's almost used of someone who is boastful about who they are and what they have for no good reason. Someone with an overinflated ego and sense of self-worth. But here's the bottom line on the pride of life. It is when we take pride in who we are and in what we have instead of glorying only in Christ. It's when I look at other people and say, look at me, look at how good I am. Clap for me, applaud me, celebrate me, see me as important. 
These are the people who live for the approval of man and the applause of man. These are the people that are quick to give you their resume, quick to name drop important people that they know. This is the pride of life. And is there any other way we see this more clearly in our lives? Again, social media plays into this big time because on social media, we give people a highly edited version of our lives to try to impress them, to try to make them think that we're more important than we are, that we have more than we are. We live for the pride of life. Can you see that these three temptations are things that the world preaches and things that you and I have struggled with our whole lives? The desires that come from our sinful flesh, the things around us that pull us away from Christ, and this desire to make a name for myself, to make life all about me. But he's going to give us another reason not to love the world. And in verse 17, he's going to talk to us about the tension between the world and God's will. Verse 17, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. He's saying it's foolish to love the world because the world is passing away. Because the world is passing away. It's temporary. It's temporary. But our lives with God are going to be eternal. So why would we give everything we have to indulge ourselves in this world give everything for this world when it's on the way out, when it's passing away, and we're going to live with God forever and ever and ever. Let me use this illustration. Let's say tomorrow morning you go to work and you have a conversation with a coworker who's all fired up because they just bought something new. And I'll let you fill in the blank. It can be uh, iPhone, computer, boat, guitar, whatever you want it to be. Uh, but for the purposes of the illustration, it's gotta be really expensive, okay? So make sure you think of something good. Uh, so they tell you about this new thing that they bought that was super expensive. And there's no way that they could have afforded it. And so you're like, man, that's really cool. How, how did you pay for that? Well, I could not afford it. So I had to do everything I could to get it. I maxed out every credit card I have. I drained my savings account. I took out an early withdrawal of my retirement, took out a second mortgage on my home, but it's worth it because I had to have this thing. And you're like, okay. He said, but there is one little detail. The manufacturer said it's only gonna last at most a year and there's no warranty. But isn't it cool? And you're gonna be like, you idiot. You gave everything you had for something that's gonna go away so quickly. Friends, isn't that how all of heaven looks at us all the time? When we look at the things of this world and we give everything for them, when they're like, do you realize what's coming in eternity? This is why Pastor Sean uses this phrase all the time, eternal perspective. We have got to keep an eternal perspective on our lives. This world is passing away. The things in this world are passing away. The desires of this world are passing away. It is when we keep that eternal perspective that we're empowered when the moment of temptation comes to say, it's not worth it. Because the one who does God's will abides forever. That's what John teaches us. The one who does God's will abides forever doing the will of God here refers to walking in obedience to God. Consider 1 Thessalonians 4.3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. That's just a big word that means your progression and growth in holiness. You're becoming more like Jesus in your life. He unpacks that a little bit more in the next chapter, 1 Thessalonians 5. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. 
what is God's will for your life? I'll tell you. It's that you would joyfully, gratefully, and prayerfully pursue sanctification. Joyfully, prayerfully, and thankfully pursue Christ and becoming more like him, doing the will of God, keeping God's commands, honoring him. He gives us what to do instead. He said, instead of loving the world, pursue obedience to God. Pursue Christ, and that will last forever. Man, so we've walked through this text and we've seen the command that we have not to love the world, but instead to pursue the Father and his will. And this has been a heavy sermon. It's been weighty for me. It's a heavy, weighty text. Uh, And another reason why it's weighty for me is because I have colossally failed the message of this text. And it's okay because you have too. We all have. Everyone in this room has loved the world. Everyone in this world, everyone in this room, yeah, and in this world, but also in this room, um, has given in to the desires of our flesh, the desires of our eyes, the pride of life. We have sinned. And so if the message this morning were just, go try harder to be good, well, good luck. But praise God that there's something better than that. We have all sinned. We have all loved the world more than the Father. But our only hope is this, that Christ has overcome the world. That's our hope, that Christ has overcome the world. Our hope is that Jesus Christ has been faithful where we have not been. Our only hope is that Jesus has overcome the temptations of the world that you and I have given into. Because I want you to see something. There's a connection I really want you to see this morning. Follow along. Let's go all the way back to the beginning, Genesis chapter three, when in a perfect world, the serpent comes to Adam and Eve in order to tempt them. And notice how he tempts them in Genesis 3, 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So Adam and Eve standing there, the tree is good for food. It's going to satisfy my flesh. It's going to taste so good. Even though God said, I can't have it. I want it. I want to indulge my flesh. Sounds a lot like the desires of the flesh. She saw that it was a delight to the eyes. Look how pretty it is. Look how shiny it is. I want that. Sounds a lot like the desires of the eyes. It was desired to make one wise. I'm going to be wise. Or believing the serpent's lie, I'm going to be like God. I'm going to be important. Sounds a lot like the pride of life, doesn't it? Satan's strategy has not changed from the beginning of creation until now. Same three temptations that Eve and Adam fell to. But you see, thousands of years later, that same serpent came to tempt someone yet again, but there's a few differences. This time, it was not in a garden paradise, but in a forsaken wilderness. And this time, instead of like Adam and Eve had plenty of food to eat, God said, you can eat whatever you want in this whole garden except for one tree. Instead of plentiful food, he hadn't eaten for 40 days. And he came with his same three temptations, saying, I'm definitely going to get him. Because remember, he came to Adam and Eve and said, did God really say? He comes to Jesus and says, if you are the son of God, And how does Jesus respond? Luke chapter four. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Jesus, you're hungry. I know that you've been called to this, but you deserve to satisfy your flesh. You deserve to indulge yourself, Jesus. 
Give in to the desires of the flesh. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him and showed him, showed him, desires of the eyes, all the kingdoms of this world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Just a quick side note. This has nothing to do with the sermon. I just think it's funny. Uh, I heard recently about a church website where they had on their banner at the top, if you worship me, it will all be yours. That sounds great, but context matters. Because uh, who said that? Anybody? <laughs> Satan. Anyway, um, keep going. Um, and Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. He wouldn't give in to the desires of the eyes. He showed him the whole world, not just a piece of fruit. And he would not give in. Last one. He took him to Jerusalem. Remember, they're out in a forsaken wilderness. Now they're in Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple where everyone would be, the very center of life in Jerusalem. And said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against stone. He's appealing to his pride, isn't he? He's saying, Jesus, you're at the center of Jerusalem. You have lived a life in 30 years as a carpenter in obscurity and no one knows who you are. Now do this magic trick in the center of Jerusalem. Everyone will be wowed. They'll believe in you. He's appealing to his pride, pride of life. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Where Adam and Eve failed to believe the word of God, Jesus trusted in it all three times quoting scripture to the evil one. And in so doing, Jesus demonstrated the truth of John 16, I have said these things to you that in me, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus faced the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and the pride of life head on and he overcame them where you and I had failed. The gospel is not go and be good. The gospel is that Jesus has conquered the evil one and has conquered the world on our behalf. And that by grace through faith, his perfect record of obedience is credited to us, though we've done nothing to deserve it and everything not to deserve it. That's the gospel that Jesus has overcome the world in our place. And here's the even better part. Now that Christ is ours, now that Christ is our life, now that by the spirit he is dwelling in us, we really can change. We really can now begin to say no to the desires of our flesh, to say no to the desires of our eyes into the pride of life. That's the good news of the gospel, that Jesus forgives us and he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So as the worship and the prayer team comes now, I wanna leave you with one final quote and one final thought this morning. This is from Charles Spurgeon. He said, I believe that one reason why the church of God at this present time has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. Put your finger on any prosperous page in the church's history, and I will find a little marginal note reading thus. In this age, men could readily see where the church began and where the world ended. 
Never were there good times when the church and the world were joined together in marriage with one another. The more the church is distinct from the world in her acts and in her maxims, the more true is her testimony for Christ and the more potent is her witness against sin. Church, we are not to love the world because we love the world. Using both senses of that word. We are not to love the lies in the system of this world because we love the people in this world so much. And we want to bring the gospel to them. The reality is, the more the church is like the world, the less we will be effective in the world. The less likely we are to win the world for Christ. And so this is the charge. Let us find those roots, those traces of worldliness in our hearts, drag them into the light and repent. Repent of worldly ways of thinking, worldly ways of feeling, worldly values and desires and beliefs that we have that we need to bring before the Lord and we need to repent of them and turn from them. I believe that when we do this and only when we do this, we will begin to make a difference in the world for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We will begin to make a difference in Gloucester County for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's why. Because when the church looks like the world, we have nothing to offer the world. They don't need us anymore. They already have them. The world has no need of a worldly church. But a church that is different is evidence that the gospel works, that the gospel really changes and transforms our lives. So let's strive to be a church where it is clear that we do not love the system of this world, but we dearly love the people in this world and we love them enough to tell them the truth. Amen. Let's close with prayer. Father, I'd like to start by just saying I repent. Or I repent of, even in prepping this sermon, ways that came to my mind of how I've been influenced by the world far more than I even realize. Lord, I repent of the times I've given in to the desires of my flesh and eyes and indulged my own pride. Lord, forgive me. Forgive us, Lord. Lord, we acknowledge that, Lord, apart from you, we cannot do this. And we praise you that Christ is our Savior who has overcome the world on our behalf. And that in his victory, we stand and we can begin to live in the freedom that you have for us. So Lord, would you convict us? Would you challenge us? Would you motivate us to pursue your will in our lives, to love you with all of our hearts and to love the people around us by engaging them with the gospel? Or we love you and praise you and give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.